Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our text for our sermon is the first epistle of John as recorded in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of our Lord. In search of the real historical Jesus comes up time after time. And the one source they don't look to is the source that has all the witnesses, the Bible. Our society likes to do this. And then when you ask somebody, how do you know you're saved? Or they ask that question. Well, there's big cults that are based on Christianity. One of them, I say Wyoming's the front porch to this cult because it exists in the state next to us. Well, they say, pray to God and he'll give you a burning in the bosom. Great, but if you take Pepto-Bismol, then what happens to your faith? Walk into Christian bookstores and you'll find books that tell you how to pray to God to give you faith. Or 12 steps to faith. The Apostle John is the last apostle alive. He's the only one who does not die a martyr's death. He gets to die of natural causes, shall we say. And yet today in our sermon, as he's addressing problems that are arising in the Christian church, and he's the last one to confront them, we'll answer the question, how do you know that God loves you and that you are a Christian? In search of the real historical Jesus. Do you know in the history of the New Testament Christian church, there have always been two problems when it comes to the person of Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a cult known as Gnosticism that Christianity had to battle in its early days. It denied that Jesus was true man. And in fact, they taught a whole bunch of other goofy things. But we also, in the history of the New Testament church, always also find the opposite being taught, that Jesus was true God. That's what happens when you go in search of the historical Jesus. And the Apostle John deals with that right away, and it has a lot to say about your faith. He says... That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked over and our hands touched concerning the word of life. He calls Jesus the word of life. 
in our gospel lesson, we saw that all of the apostles, all the disciples, got to see the nail marks. They, we think of Thomas getting to stick his fingers in them. But John here points out something. Jesus is true man. We got to touch him. Jesus didn't just die. He rose. We got to touch him. We got to see it. It's not the empirical evidence, though, that convinces us of this. It's the fact that he is the word of life. And if he is the word of life, he must be true God and true man. And John says, and the life was revealed, and we have seen, and we continue testifying to, and we continue reporting to you the life, the eternal one, which very one was face to face with the Father, and it was revealed. I'm preaching on my own literal translation of the inspired Greek language that John wrote his epistle in. If Jesus was face to face with God, standing there, you know, touching noses, John here in both saying we've touched him gives us the empirical evidence he's man. John here testifies that gotten to, having to see all those miracles and everything else, Jesus from his own words claimed this, you can't deny it. He came from the Father. He was face to face with the Father. He's God. You believe the message of life. And the message of life is true God became true man to give you and I eternal life. He's the message of life because once he sends that message into your life, he sends the Holy Spirit through that message to give you faith. There are many people who claim to be Christians. They search for the real historical Jesus and they turn to all the sources but the ones that actually get who the real historical Jesus was. Jesus is true God and true man. The devil knows that. The devil's not saved. The Holy Spirit has entered your heart so that you believe your God, true God, became true man, lived in your place, died in your place, rose in your places, ascended and is ruling over all creation for you to make all things benefit you. You believe he is your savior. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit working through the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. In his word, the Bible gives us that life. And so he continues, that which we have seen and we have heard, we continue reporting also to you so that you may also have a joint participation. We translate that as fellowship, but there's such a neat picture. A joint partaking, a joint participation with us. When you trust that Jesus is true God and true man, the Holy Spirit enters your heart and unites you to Jesus so you have the Holy Spirit, you're united with Him, He's in your heart, and you're united to Jesus. But while you're in that process, you become united with everybody who truly believes Jesus is true God and true man, who was born for them, lived in their place, suffered the punishment for their sins, rose victorious, has ascended rules over heaven. You're united with them. This is what truly makes us members of that mystical union where Christ is the head. A joint participation. How does it come to us? It's not through following a 12-step process. It's not through a burning in the bosom. That which we have seen and what we have heard, we continue reporting also to you. It's the Word when it's preached to us, when we read it, when we hear it. The Holy Spirit works through that, and it gives us that joint participation. He says, and that very joint participation, which is ours, is also the joint participation with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. 
When the Holy Spirit is in your heart, we get that, okay, he lives in my heart, he's created a new man while I have this sinful nature, but when he's there in your heart, that new man is connected to the body which Jesus is the head and that new man, although we can't see it with these sinful eyes, is, is the glory of God and will be given that glory visibly in the resurrection when you and I are given our new and glorified bodies. And so he reiterates in verse 4, And we ourselves are writing these things so that your joy may be one that has been made full. When you hear that word, the Holy Spirit working through it, that word fills you. As St. As Augustine had said, the soul is restless until it finds rest in you. When you know true God has become true man and has died, lived in your place, died in your place for your sins, you have a joy even in the miseries of this world. Because you know he's ruling over creation for you. You know heaven is yours. You know your sins are forgiven. So how do you know that God loves you and that you are a Christian? You believe the message that Jesus is true God and true man who has died and risen for your sins. So let's look at what the consequences of what happens uh, besides that joint participation that we get when the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. Verse 5. And it is this very message which we have heard from him, that's Jesus, got it right from the source, and we are reporting back to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Scripture, and John especially, uses that picture of darkness for the ignorance of our sinful nature that doesn't understand we can't save ourselves, we can't earn our salvation. The only way to be saved is Christ. We are sinners. But he also uses that picture of darkness as sin. And notice he says the Father, there's no darkness in him at all. We have to understand that. Let me give you a story from my ministry, true one, obviously, that, that, will, that will explain that. A young man comes into my office one day, he's dating a girl who belongs to one of those holiness churches that cannot possibly believe that Jesus ever drank wine. And they're getting into a pretty good argument about it, so he finally says, I'm going to go talk to my pastor about this, and get some good ammunition. So I said to him, if you look at the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus turns the seven barrels of water into wine. Now they still have to press the grape juice and stuff, but good wine came... They didn't have the yeast, and they had to get it out of the air. So the good wine, it was kind of a, a, by chance, if you'll, by divine providence, whether you ended up with sour stuff that maybe you'd use to scrub your floor, I guess, or whether you ended up with really good stuff. And he did this in minutes. This is not grape juice. So he goes and shares this with his girlfriend. And her, she runs off and talks to her, to, to her mother. And she comes back and tells my friend, that's right, it has to be wine. You're right. And we, my mother and I looked at it, and God the Father was mad at Jesus for doing that. What? then Jesus is a sinner and he could not have saved us. He'd be just as bad as we are. God has no darkness. He's holiness. And to be in his presence, we have to be holy. And that's why we needed the Savior. So we're told in verse 6, if we ever say that we continue having that joint participation together with God and we continue walking around in darkness, then we are always lying and we are not doing, literally acting out, living out the truth. There's a truth here. You and I are sinners. We do not enjoy it. And if we claim that we do not have sin, we're, we're lying. Until we admit our sin, we can only walk around in darkness. This is a fruit the Holy Spirit produces. He uses the law, those Ten Commandments, that shows us God is holy. There's no darkness in Him. So that it scares us. I can't stand in His presence. I'm too sinful. 
then our heart is glad to hear the good news. Jesus did it for us and he washes us clean. But we still have this sinful nature in us. Yet we don't want to walk in the darkness. The Holy Spirit produces that fruit. Suddenly those Ten Commandments become not a way to earn our salvation. They never were. But the way we return thanks to God, the way we let the light of Christ shine out of our hearts, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know the kid's song, one of my favorites. That's what we're doing when we use those Ten Commandments as a thank you, as a guide in our lives. So verse 7 says, Yet if we continue walking about in the light as God continues being in the light, then we continue having a joint participation together with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, continues to make us clean from all sin. If we're going to embrace the sin and say, this is mine, we'll drive the Holy Spirit out of our heart. A man was doing that in Corinth. He's having intercourse with his stepmother. He's bragging about his freedom because Christ will forgive him. The, freedom, the forgiveness of Christ is not a license to sin. We struggle against our sin to let that light shine through. And the Holy Spirit produces fruits of faith. Sometimes we can see them, sometimes we can't. You're here this morning. Why did you come here? You came here to hear and learn the word of God, to confess your sins and hear that they've been removed. That is a fruit of faith. I look at you, every one of you, and I see a fruit of faith. When we use that law as a guide to thank the Lord, when we love our neighbors as ourselves, when we love God above all things, we are using the law as a guide, and the Holy Spirit is actually producing Fruits of our faith. So, the faith is the Holy Spirit living in your heart. That's how you know you're a Christian, because you believe that Jesus is true God and true man who has died and risen for your sins. But then, because you believe in him, if you want visible evidence, look at the fruits of your faith. You come to hear the word, be strengthened in the word, so you can let that light shine and receive that light. So, the fruits of faith are there. He continues, though, because when you have those fruits of faith, you always recognize... You have us, I say every one of us has our own unique pet sins. And we fight against them. And we lose the fight time and time again because this is where we're weak. That's where the sinful nature knows our blind spot and it stabs us there every time it can. And sometimes we lose the battle. So he says in verse 8, If we would ever say that we do not continue having sin, we lead ourselves astray and the truth is not in us. Once you come to faith, you are credited with Christ's holiness. But you still have a sinful nature with you. So if you think that you quit sinning in this life, the Apostle John says you're full of beans. God's truth is not in you. Amazing, because I've heard plenty of Christians teach the opposite. In fact, this was the problem with the Reformation. This is what started it, right? The church was teaching that you could run off and join a monastery and you could be so holy and produce so many holy acts of fruits of faith that you could even share them with others to help them remove their sins. This all comes crumbling down with the idea that if you claim you do not have sin, you're a liar. End of discussion. You have to admit you have a sinful nature. But what happens? I fight against that sinful nature and you fight against it and there are times we win and we are thankful. We thank the Holy Spirit. He's producing the fruits of faith. But what happens when we lose? Verse 9, if we continue confessing our sins, God is faithful, he's trustworthy, and he is righteous. That is, he sends off our sins and makes us clean from all unrighteousness. You are sinner and saint at the same time. The saint in you is the new man that the Holy Spirit has created. That is your faith. 
That's what because it trusts in Christ. That new man, when it wins the victories, thanks the Lord because the Holy Spirit has given him the power to do it. And that new man in you, when the sinful nature gets its sucker punches in and it falls into sin, it confesses its sins and thanks the Lord that the blood of Christ has washed him away. Not using that as a license to sin. Oh, whoopee, I'm free. No, not wanting to sin, but being thankful when it falls into the sin because Christ has removed it, confessing it knowing you are sinner and saint. So he says in verse 10, if we ever say that we have not sinned, then we are making God a liar and his word is not in us. You can't get any clearer than that. As a fruit of faith, how do you know you're a Christian? Because you believe that Jesus is true God and true man who died, lived in your place, died in your place, rose for you, rules over all creation for you. The Holy Spirit is in your heart producing the, the saint in you while at the same time you have that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, the sinner. You confess and believe it. And therefore, you know the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. The last evidence that we could say in our question today. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I am writing these things to you so that you won't sin. Now, we can't understand this as saying, I'll never ever sin, because he just said if we claim we don't ever sin, then we're liars. We're calling God and his word a liar, which tells us that. He puts it in perspective. He says, and if ever a person sins, we continue having an advocate face to face with the Father who is Jesus Christ, who is righteous. Remember, we began that by saying Jesus was face to face with the Father. Neat picture, folks. If there's somebody in between you and I, and I'm standing right in front of you, nose to nose with you, you're not going to see that person behind me. You're going to see me. This is how it works. You are sinner and saint. But God, when he looks at you, Jesus is face to face with him. He sees Christ's righteousness all over you. He sees Christ's holiness. He sees Christ's obedience. He sees Christ's sacrifice for your sins and my sins. We understand that Jesus is the means of forgiveness. It's not my being holy enough or your being holy enough. It's not that we punish ourselves enough. It's not that we feel guilty enough and browbeaten enough. No, Jesus is the means of forgiveness, the tool that is one and gives us forgiveness. And so he says, and Jesus is the means of forgiveness concerning our sins and not concerning ours only, that would be us believers, but also concerning the sins of the entire world. See, Christ died for all the world. There's only one sin that condemns you to hell, just one. It's unbelief. If you drive that Holy Spirit out of your heart, if you reject that Holy Spirit, then you miss the pipeline that gives you the blood of Christ. You're not clinging to Christ alone for salvation. This is a restatement of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for who? For the world that whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That's part of faith. Faith is knowing that Jesus is the means of forgiveness, not only for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And it becomes yours, it be, the gift becomes yours when the Holy Spirit enters your heart so that you do trust that message and cling to it. How do you know that God loves you and that you are a Christian? You believe the message that Jesus is true God and true man who has died and risen for your sins and rules over all creation for them. The Holy Spirit is in your heart. That's what gave you that. And you can see the fruits of that faith. You want to hear the word of God in these things. You know that you are sinner and saint. The word of God, the Holy Spirit has convinced you of that. You see the new man and the sinful nature. 
And you know that Jesus is the means of forgiveness, not only for your own sins, but for the whole world. Amen. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has called you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.